Selamat datang kembali semuanya. Welcome back to the Indotechno Podcast, Season 3, Episode 13. I'm Alan Hallowell, founder of startup consultancy Gizmo Advisors. Now, one of our most consistent focus areas here at Indotechno is the small and medium-sized enterprise, or the SME. Meeting the various needs, particularly the financial needs, of the small enterprise owner has attracted some of the best minds in the entrepreneurial ecosystem here in Indonesia, along with vast amounts of startup capital. Today, we have joining us the co-founder of Funding Societies, one of the very first and the most successful pure play in offering financial services to SMEs, Reynold Wijaya. Reynold, this episode has been more than a year in the making. Glad we were finally able to set this up. Thanks a lot for joining. Hey, Alan, it's actually a pleasure and sorry it took so long for us to actually make it happen. So yeah, very happy to share all of the thoughts today. Well, as they say, good things come to those who wait. Now, first, a quick point of clarification. I'll be referring to two company names, Funding Societies, which is the largest SME digital financing platform in the region and is actually the regional business, and Modalku, which is the company's Indonesian operations. Now, Reynold, can we simply kick off by stating what exactly Modalku does as of June 2022? Yeah, of course. So Modalku and Funding Societies are sister companies. So it's basically the same company under the same holding, just to be very clear. So what Modalku does is actually a digital lending platform in Southeast Asia together with Funding Societies and the other sister companies that we have in the region. We are today operating in five countries. Indonesia, Singapore, Malaysia, Vietnam, and Thailand. And we are the largest digital lending platform for SMEs. Today, we have disbursed more than $2 billion to more than 5 million loans that we have dispersed all across Southeast Asia, focusing mostly on SMEs. Lately, we have developed into a new banking play. I'll be very happy to explain further later in the episode. Yeah, I'll be sure to want to come around to talk about that. And... While we are speaking about what we're doing now and what we're moving into, if we look at the business over time, we originally focused on, number one, funding for access to credit for SMEs, offering things such as unsecured lending and credit cards, trade finance, property-backed loans, and whatnot. We are now well into a second category, as I understand it, which is supporting the SME's ability to transact with things like supply chain lending, payments and collections, invoicing and expense management. And now as we look forward, and not to steal your thunder, I want to get your comments on this. It looks as though our next and third area is full digital banking. Now, this latest category would seem to be by far the largest, but also has many, many claimants to the crown. How will we be rendering digital banking differently and frankly, better than our crowded field of competitors, Reynal. So to be very clear, we are actually a bit different on how we started the company compared to other companies. So we started as a financing business in which most of, I wouldn't say competitors, just because it's not a direct competition, but more like our friends out there usually started with something else and then they get into lending because lending has always been perceived as a profitable business. So it is actually a hub and spoke model in which the lending is usually the spoke. So what we did differently was we built the spoke first, whereas others usually did the hub first, and then they entered into lending. So that is the main difference. But at the same time as well, why we decided to do that was because we knew early on that lending is actually a very complicated business. 
it's not something that along with resources you can do well. You need to have the right DNA for lending. If you grow too fast, then your book will explode. If you grow too slow, then it will not work. So the combination, the balance, especially when you do SMEs, in which you need to balance between technology and traditional finance, is still very important. And many of the peers out there usually try to do everything to automatically. And that might work in some aspects, but for traditional SMEs, it's going to be very hard. So that's the biggest difference in which we know the core of lending and we branch out from there. And us as a quite neutral player in the region and as all of our shareholders are actually neutral thesis as well, it makes us easier to actually work and collaborate with others. So we are always open to partner with others because again, for those high growth company out there who wants to do lending, there are always alternatives. Either they do it themselves or work with us. So we are in the later category that everybody who wants to do lending and want to work with us, we are always very open to do that. So that's the biggest difference that we do with others. And we know lending very well because it is the core of our business rather than we want to venture into lending as an opportunistic move. Fascinating analogy, the hub and spoke, or rather in our case, the spoken hub. You start with that strongest and biggest, but probably most complicated spoke being lending, and that naturally lends to the hub. And you can therefore build out the rest of the wheel as the comparison would have it. That's very useful. Thanks for that. Now, just pulling to the side of the road for a second, could we say that we're no longer exclusively SME focused, but that we're also offering financial services to individuals, to the staff of small enterprises? I see, for instance, that we have an early wage access product to employees, quote unquote, EWA is itself a bustling category on its own with pure play names such as Wagely, Kajiges, and others. Can you tell us a little more about that? Yeah, sure. I think they are really good players and I think they are doing really well. Us as a company, I would say, I don't know the real number, maybe 95% plus for sure, focus on SMEs. We do have a small chunk of our business in retail, but it has always been related to business. For example, like you rightly mentioned, that we don't do any lending in terms of, hey, you want to buy, let's say, a smartphone and you need financing. So we don't do that. So what we do is actually help businesses to serve their employees. So recently, we made a collaboration with one of the largest taxi providers in Indonesia to actually support their drivers. So those are the type of lending that we want, not necessarily because we want to enter the space rather than because by serving the drivers or the employees of the companies, that means we serve the SMEs as well. So using that logic, we actually enter into this, but I don't think we will enter into a pure retail segment, at least for the near future. Gotcha. So really more of an ancillary and complementary service to strengthen even further our SMEs and improve their prospects for success. Okay. Understood. Now let's go back to the big picture. Modalku is, among other things, really a proxy for the health of the region's SMEs. You must have seen some very dramatic shifts in that health throughout the pandemic. Reynold, would you mind recounting for us the main ups and downs that set in since early 2020? Yeah, of course. And actually, there are a lot of lessons that we took as well from that. Honestly, as a lending business, anybody who tells you they are not impacted from COVID-19, I think, it's either too good to be true or they are not telling the truth because I am very certain everybody gets impacted as us as well. But what we did very well and we are quite proud of was we were able to shift 
the focus early on and do a lot of restructuring in terms of how we disperse the credit. So what happened was early on, we predicted that COVID will be long. And this was back in March, 2020. So we kind of predicted it's going to be long. Based on that prediction, we shifted the focus and we thought to ourselves, what kind of industry will thrive under this long situation and what kind of industry will suffer? So those who will suffer, we have no choice. It was a hard choice, but we recall most of the loans as soon as possible because the longer we wait, it's going to be harder. And we do have some default from those segments just because it's natural to have some defaults from the segments. Let's say tourism, travel. No matter how good you are, if you're in travel business, of course, 2020, 2021 was tough for you. And we try to support them to the max of our ability. So we try to restructure as many as we can. But then at the same time as well, we need to continue growing. So we predict what is the next big thing in this economy. So that's why we shifted a lot of the credit towards FMCG and telco, as well as healthcare at the time. So it's more of a shift towards which segments that we want to cater. Mostly, it was the segment that we thought would thrive under the new economy. Yeah. Thanks for that. And just staying on this topic, what do you see now with inflation fears roiling the global economies? Bringing that challenge down to the grassroots level, what changes and conditions are Indonesia's SMEs commonly facing in this environment? I think the real SMEs, and I can be very wrong here, I think it's going to be fine, especially looking back at the 2008 global financial crisis. And the reason is because SMEs usually are the last one to be affected and usually the least affected in terms of this kind of inflation. In terms of the global economy, I think it's going to be very tough. I honestly believe there will be credit crunch in the region because of the interest hike. And that will naturally make credit more expensive, not necessarily make the business less good. For example, I don't necessarily think the SMEs business will be highly impacted, but I think the cost of financing will increase in the region because of the interest. Well, I want to read something back to you, which I think is very important. What I am not hearing is the voice of a panicked founder who may have been caught lending too aggressively. It sounds as though you guys have used the past few years to really refine our business such that you've got quality lenders, quality borrowers. And yes, even if we repeat the same conditions as the global financial crisis, we have got a portfolio, particularly of borrowers that will weather this quite well versus the fly-by-night or fair weather companies that may not be able to deal with so much as a quarter of challenging conditions. So that's great to hear. Now, from the early years that I had the privilege of working with you and your co-founder, Kelvin Cho, it was very clear that the SME lending segment was very backward, very inefficient. SMEs had to rely largely on informal funding, tapping their own savings, friends and family, bank loans, even personal credit cards and whatnot. Has this big picture characterization changed much in Indonesia in your mind? I think many things have changed a lot during the last six, seven years. And to be very fair, you're right in a way that I think majority of SMEs are still having problems accessing to finance. But at the same time as well, it really depends on where the SME is doing business. For example, if the SMEs are actually very involved in a digital ecosystem, say e-commerce or whatever tech platform out there that they collaborate with or that they do the majority of the businesses on, then that will be easier for people like us to actually automate many things. 
But yeah, you're right in a way that, hey, if you see mom and pop shops, say in the middle of Java, and honestly, I don't think financing has changed a lot for them. I do think retail financing has changed a lot. And I do think many mom and pops actually use retail services as an alternative. Because when you do a micro financing, then the line between productive and consumptive loan can be very blurry. So I would say it really depends on what kind of SMEs you're referring to. Some, yeah, have seen major improvements. Some, unfortunately, we still need a lot of work to do. That sounds like opportunity for us in the future. Now, with regard to Mudalku specifically, can you share with us the more common profiles of borrowers of ours in Indonesia? What are our biggest industry verticals served? Maybe what are the most common uses of proceeds for our borrowers? I would say we are very much a trade finance focused lending in a way that we do a wide variety of lending, but the majority, the biggest portion is actually on trade finance. To answer your question quickly, the two biggest industry will be FMCG and Telco. Just because FMCG and Telco have very high velocity and it's very good in terms of how we do trade. So for them, the cost is going to be cheap just because the tenor is very low. So for them, it's something that they can actually work with as well. Those two are actually the major segments for us. Sorry, Reynold. When we say telco, are we talking about small stores that are selling top-up minutes or what is the telco category? Oh yeah, that's actually a very good question. So to be very clear, we haven't given any lending to the agents of, let's say, on credit providers. But what we do is actually give lending to the company who sells a credit to these agents. So it's going to be easy to, so they will fall under larger SMEs with very high velocity and some of them actually in tech businesses as well. Gotcha. That's a helpful clarification. A very simple question for you, Reynold. How do we make our money? Is it a spread on lending? I also see we have a SaaS product. So how do we break down our revenues currently? Yeah, as I mentioned earlier, we actually branch out to a new banking strategy. We gradually branch out of lending, but today the majority of the revenue comes from lending in which you're absolutely correct. It comes from the spread, the majority of the revenue. But later on, as we want to grow into more new banking, we will try to reduce the balance sheet amount. We will try to save many of the books and we will try to get more revenue from other kinds of services, including SaaS. And we mentioned in our marketing literature that we are AI-led or artificial intelligence-led. What are the most sophisticated implementations of AI and what specific innovation do they bring to our business, which differentiates Modalku from any other competitor? So that's actually a very good question. And I just want to clarify the misperception here that generally people think that everything has to be done automatically, but that is not the case for financing. It will really depend on the segment that you're catering to. Some will be very suitable to implement AI and some will not, for example, a generally larger ticket size will not be too suitable for AI just because it doesn't make sense. But at the same time as well, for a very small micro entrepreneurs, which is within a digital ecosystem, that makes sense because many of the data, many of the transactions, we can actually get it online or we can get it through our partners or third-party ecosystem. So we have a product called Virtual Credit. It will significantly reduce the paperwork and the time to get the loans disbursed. Those are the segments that will be very suitable and those are the segments that we are trying to aggressively grow and to test the credit model as well because this is something that is continuous learning. 
because I would say many of the credit criteria or assessment that you do one with person and with AI are actually quite different. So there are many verifications and many tweakings that we need to do. And hopefully gradually we will get better and better. Now you talk about smaller merchants or enterprise that are in a digital ecosystem, lending themselves more to successful use of AI. Does that mean maybe like a merchant on one of the e-commerce platforms that almost everything from customer relationship management to ERP and inventory management has digital data coming from it as opposed to hard copy manual stuff? Is that what you're talking about? Yeah, that's actually a very good example. And that's one of the segments, definitely. However, one of the advantages that we have as a neutral player is that majority of the really good sellers will not have only one account in one e-commerce, right? They will have multiple accounts. And us as an independent player, I would say we have no dependency on a single platform. And that helps us to see data more on a helicopter view on what the business is really doing rather than basing that from a single data point. But you are completely correct. Okay. So one message I'm hearing is not everything under the sun can be or even should be done in an automated AI-driven fashion. Is there one part of our process which really has to stay manual? It is a process that sheds incredible light on, for instance, a borrower's ability to pay back. Is there one offline behavior that you think will be around for a long time, which digitization and AI will just not replace? Yeah, definitely. I would say the biggest one will be relationship building and loyalty. Believe it or not, usually a larger SMEs will be very loyal and they have sentimental values to the financial providers because say there is a financial provider who has helped them from the very beginning and they grow very big. They will not care too much about the price as long as it's not too crazy but they will want the one partner that have been with us from the very beginning to stay with them until the end. Yeah, that is something that I think cannot be replaced by AI, especially as we're talking about, and you are very familiar with Indonesian market, and we're talking about the Southeast Asian market as well, where relationship actually plays a very big role in doing business compared to, say, Western culture. Yes, very interesting, as the Chinese would call it, guanxi. Totally different topic for you, Reynold. Where are our main development teams? And how do we eventually settle on locating our developers in those markets? Honestly, the answer is all around. It's actually a very good development growth that we have. So in the past, when we were still quite small, everything has to be done within the place that we operate in. So majority are actually in Singapore. But Singapore is not probably the best place to actually get tech talent because of the competition and the price. They have excellent talents, but also very high price. What we did gradually was we tried to recruit offline. So now we have developers all around. We have developers in India, in Bangladesh, in Pakistan, as well as Taiwan. So yeah, it's all around. And our CTO, Ishana, has done a very good job in terms of building this tech talent all across the globe without even have to meet very frequently. So yeah, that's actually very good. That's really interesting because... But with a lot of other players in this space, they seem to have a nexus of development somewhere. Gojek, Bangalore, Shopee, Shenzhen. It's quite interesting. We're managing a more virtualized development effort. Now, access to lenders is always key to success. It allows us to lend out more and more flexibly. 
How does Moraku secure this quote-unquote balance sheet? And what kind of competitive moats do we have in this space? I would say there are two competitive moats. Number one is that our portfolio is quite healthy in a way that we try to do the right thing all the time. So the fundamentals, like we mentioned earlier, that lending is actually extremely complicated. It's not like you have the biggest resources you can do very well there. And most often than not, if you have a very big resource, you will blow up because you try to grow too aggressively. So yeah, that's number one, because we grow gradually within seven years. So we know what we're doing. So portfolio-wise, it's quite healthy. Maybe not the best in the entire region, but again, it's healthy enough to be trusted by many of the institutions. And number two is that the regional presence is actually very important as well. Unlike many of our peers, we are very regional focused in the sense that from the very beginning, we are a regional company. And having Singapore as a hub is actually helpful as well in terms of getting the source of fund. For example, if you're only operating in Indonesia, then yeah, the market is actually there in terms of how you disperse the money because there is no way you should disperse too much in Singapore to SMEs because there are not too many SMEs in the first place. And there's not a lot of financial gap in such a developed country as Singapore. But in Indonesia, it's not the best place to attract fund as well. So yeah, having, let's say, both Singapore to attract fund and Indonesia to help disperse the fund actually helps a lot in terms of how you strategically get these lenders. I wasn't aware of that, what you might call symbiosis there. Now, if we roll back the reels, the seven and a half years since we founded Funding Societies, what are the one or two most punishing lessons that we've learned throughout that period? Actually, many crazy lessons, to be very honest. People will see how glamorous the founder's life is, but in reality, there are so many times when you are this close to actually having to do very extreme stuff. So we are in a fortunate position that we never almost died, but at the same time as well, there are many occasions where we are suffering, of course. And it's normal as the company develops from sculpture and whatever. So I would say there are two very memorable learning lessons that we have. Number one is internal. That was back then when we were still very young. We were, we tend to be afraid of things. Now we are much chiller because we have seen so many more bad stuff <laughs> happening. But in the beginning, when you're still growing, you're not used to that. So many of the decisions you made actually out of fear. And when you made decisions out of fear, most often than not, that decision is actually very bad. <laughs> so internally, we have this decision that we destroy the whole ESOP structure because we were afraid. ESOP stands for Employee Stock Ownership Program. Yeah, you're right. Thankfully, we were able to minimize that very early on. But if we hadn't interfered early on, that would be catastrophic. So that's the internal one. The external one, there are really many lessons. And I would say the most recent one, we talked about this earlier, early on in COVID 2020, we made the very bold decision to recall most of the loans from the segments that we think will suffer. And where when people haven't recalled and you think, yeah, many people will think, wow, you're overreacting. We actually did that. And that actually saved a lot in terms of potential defaults. We can talk all night on the lessons, to be honest. <laughs> now, Reynolds, from our perspective, where do the incumbent banks sit within the financial services landscape in 2022 in Indonesia? Are they crossing the chasm to areas such as digital banking for SMEs? And are they our competitors? Are they our partners or entirely something else? That is actually a very good question. A very interesting one, because if you talk about Indonesia specifically, 
I really think that banks are your friends. And the reason why I say that is because I think traditional banks will never be able to enter into our segment in which it is an uncultured loans. So by entering to the segments, they will clash with their own DNA and their own policy and stuff. So by themselves, I really think they are complementary to the market. Because again, there is no way I can serve corporates better than banks do. There's no way that my cost of fund will be cheaper than a typical bank in Indonesia. So to begin with, our businesses has always been to cater to those who haven't been able to be catered by the bank. So we always try to serve the creditworthy, unbankable segments. So to begin with, they are the segments that we are surfing are not bankable in the first place. And because they are never a competition because they are never interested in surfing SMEs in the first place. And by combining the forces, like what we did with Bank Index, in which we invested as a minority shareholder in Bank Index, I think we will enlarge the ecosystem much better. And we can really have those unbankable SMEs towards the bankable one day with Bank Index. Thanks for that. That's very helpful. Now, for listeners outside the region, if you were to pinpoint our closest comp globally, would it be a Brax, a Clearco, Melio, Funbox, or someone else? And what would the biggest similarities be that lead you to make that comparison? To be very honest, it is actually a very hard question to answer just because South Asia acts quite differently. So the real answer that I can give you is actually, I think we are a combination of many of the names that you mentioned. So yeah, we want to be a bit like Brax for sure. And we want to be a bit like, let's say, Green Seal <laughs> before COVID. They were doing really well. So yeah, those names are actually very good names. And obviously, as we grow into a deal banking strategy, of course, people like Monzo, Revolut are some of the names that we try to benchmark as well and get better. Excellent. Now, Reynold, I'll finish by asking you to answer the now ubiquitous demand that VCs seem to be making of their portfolio companies, which is to become profitable soon. Can we ourselves do this over the next year or two? That's what we aim to do, yes. Maybe more in two to three years as a group. So as a business, we have a few that have been quite profitable. But as a group, we are not there yet. So something that we want to achieve gradually. And this is something that we think very important early on. So we try to be a profitable business, sustainable business as soon as possible. The point being, you do feel you have the wherewithal over a two to three year period to break even and deliver that profitability. So that's what I want to achieve, yes. <laughs> Got you. Reynold, again, so cool to hear from one of the true OGs in SME financial services in Southeast Asia. It was well worth the wait. Thanks again for joining us. Thanks so much, really a pleasure today and hopefully your listeners will, will be happy with this podcast. Cheers. We hope our listeners have enjoyed today's episode. As always, please consider sharing any feedback that you have about the Indo Techno podcast with us. Tenimakasi, sampai jumpa lagi.